everybody and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. If you were just wondering what was going on, what is going on this summer? Where has the Bible Breakdown been? Well, don't worry, it's back. If you're a normal person, you're just like, oh, here's another episode. So uh, either way, I'm excited to be back uh, in our lesson for the Gospel Project and excited to talk this week about Acts 18 through 21. So a lot of, lot of ground to cover here in this section, but uh, this is basically going to be Paul's third missionary journey. So this is kind of how we would characterize this section. Um, You're going to see some familiar names in terms of cities that he's visited and um, their relationship to the epistles he'll later write. And then we'll also get to see some funny examples of people trying to be Paul that aren't Paul. We'll get to hear about some writing, some guy who knows a lot, but not quite enough in Apollo. So we're going to talk about all those things this week. So starting in verse 18, we're going to kind of run through this, but um, the first thing we see is that Paul is going to have uh, this ministry in Corinth. So we know that Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians. They are both quite lengthy. And so we know that this ministry here uh, that he had was not the end of his ministry in Corinth. And the letters to the Corinthians are kind of famous for being a little bit more, um, how shall we say it? constructive criticism is perhaps the nice way you could put what Paul says to the Corinthians. So, uh, but he does have this ministry here. He goes um, and he finds himself in Corinth. One of the first couple people he meets is this guy named Aquila and he has a wife, Priscilla, and they um, get to know each other, become friends, and they are going to be people that actually also work together. So you may remember, I think it was maybe the last episode we talked about how Paul uh, was a tent maker. That was in some of the places he went, that was how he made a living. And so it looks like Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers too. So they work together. And then of course, in Paul's off time, he's going to go to the synagogue and he's going to be talking about Jesus. And there's a couple of different instances where we kind of learn what, what Paul's doing when he goes to these synagogues. One of them is in verse five, and it says, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So it sounds a little weird. We would usually probably think that Jesus was the Christ, but I think the point that the author's making, so the author of Acts is uh, is Luke, who's also the author of the book, Luke. And so, um, and he actually joins Paul on some of this journey. Um, you're going to see some wheeze in this 18 through 21 that show us that he was present there. But Ultimately, what I think Luke is trying to communicate with that is that the Jews believe there was a Christ, there was a Messiah coming. And so he's testifying to the Jews that the Christ that they all agreed was coming, that it was Jesus. So that's kind of the what we see as the focus of Paul's ministry when he is talking to the Jews in the synagogues. Um, but as has been Paul's lot, uh, he is finding that he's not making a lot of progress. Um, so there were Jews and there were Greeks in these synagogues, but obviously if you're in a synagogue, you're in a uh, Jewish context there. And he reasoned with them there for a while, but he eventually kind of gets sick of it. And he's sick of the, it says they opposed and reviled him. He gets kind of sick of it. And he tells them, whatever, I'm going to go minister to the Gentiles. So he goes to minister to the Greeks in the city. And this is what it says. It says, and he left there. And went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God. 
His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Many of the And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So that's in 18, 7 through 11. We see that Paul, basically, he leaves the synagogue and immediately runs into people that are living right outside the synagogue, ruling the synagogue. Um, and he's being met with people who believe. And it says he stayed there like 18 months teaching the word of God among them. So he had a very fruitful ministry in Corinth to the Gentiles. And again, we know that this ministry is not over in this time, and it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies for the people in Corinth who had a lot of issues, especially when we introduced the character of Apollos, who we'll talk a little bit about later. But um, eventually, Paul is going to be forced to leave Corinth um, after some political unrest, but he has a very fruitful ministry. For 18 months, he spends in the city, Corinth, a a major city um, in the ancient world, um, one that I've actually had the pleasure of visiting in Greece. And so we see that fruitful ministry again. He's going to the Jews in the synagogues, almost like as a Jew, he almost, it seems, feels obligated to them. Uh, But we see again and again, God's call on his life to be the minister to the Gentiles, that he should share Christ with the Gentiles. And we see a lot of roadblocks with the Jews. We see him have a lot of uh, success and a lot of people who are believing in Jesus amongst the Gentiles. So that was his ministry in Corinth. And then he's going to have a ministry in Ephesus. So Paul is on his way back to Antioch, starting in verse 18, and they make a stop at Ephesus. He spends some time, goes into his guess what? A synagogue reasons with guess who the Jews, um, they actually asked him to stay, but he tells them no, because it's not his place to stay, I guess. So that's kind of a bummer. He had his one shot, but what he does do, he leaves uh, Priscilla and Aquila there. So we don't necessarily get a, a reason for that, but, um, he leaves them there in Ephesus. Okay. What does that matter? Uh, but then what we see is there's this guy who comes to Ephesus named, Apollos. So Apollos is a very unique and mysterious figure in scripture. Um, We don't, that we know, he did not write any letters that we know of in the New Testament. We don't know a lot about the content of his teaching other than what we will learn in this section. So there is just some mystery around this guy. But what we do know about him is we kind of know what kind of guy he was. So Um, some things that we see in this passage about him says he's very smart. He's well-educated. He's competent in the scriptures. We see that he's very eloquent. So not only is he teaching the right things, but it appears he does it in a way that is even very engaging. And so you think of him, think of like one of your favorite preachers. This was, this was probably what Apollos was like an engaging, uh, speaker who was able to also teach the scripture accurately. So, that's very important, obviously. We, I don't think that scripture would speak so nicely of him if he didn't handle scripture as well as he apparently did. So he's here in Ephesus and he's teaching. But here's the thing. He doesn't know about baptism in the name of Jesus. It says in verse 25, though he only knew, he knew only the baptism of John. 
So it's clear he's teaching the scriptures because it says in verse 25, uh, in the first half of the verse, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord um, that, and that he taught accurately concerning Jesus. So he's teaching about Jesus, but he doesn't know about baptism and he likely doesn't know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. He doesn't know about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So what we can likely infer is that he recognizes the ministry of Jesus, has been taught about the ministry of Jesus, but he doesn't fully recognize maybe what it means to be a believer in Jesus, or he doesn't recognize what it means to be baptized into the name of Jesus. So like I said, he knows about the baptism of of John. So that's the baptism that we see early on in the Gospels when John is telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And, you know, Jesus walks up to be baptized and people are already getting baptized. So what are they getting baptized for, right? Jesus is still there. He hasn't died. So John was baptizing for the repentance of sin. Basically, it was this way of people recognizing their sin in regards to how they had followed the law, how they had obeyed God. And so people were being baptized, a baptism of repentance. So it was... um, identifying themselves with repentance from their sin, whereas the baptism that we have in the name of Jesus and the name of the Trinity is a baptism that uh, signifies our faith in Jesus, that we have become believers, that we've received the Holy Spirit. So um, we see that they're, they're different baptisms, and Apollos only knows about John's baptism. And we get actually a little piece of what John's baptism is in 19.4. Paul is going to say, John baptized with the bapti- baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So that's kind of what the baptism of John is. I should just let the verse explain it before I tried to. But that's what Apollos knew. And so guess who pulls Apollos aside? Priscilla and Aquila, who have been left there divinely ordained to be there, and they heard him speaking. And so they were able to go, and they were able to take him aside, and they were able to explain more fully um, what it meant to teach Jesus. It says in verse 26 that it was explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they're like, you got it, but there's more to it. And so Apollo's ministry is positively influenced by these people who have stayed in Ephesus um, while Paul goes on, these people who have met uh, Paul in Corinth and then now, yeah, saying in Ephesus, and they're able to kind of guide Apollos. It's also really unique, this uh, Priscilla and Aquila. That's pretty much how we always hear them mentioned. Uh, Priscilla, like you'd expect, being the female name, uh, very rare for a, a couple to be described with the uh, female's name first. So it very well may have been the case that Priscilla was really the one who maybe was able to instruct Apollos more accurately, um, though I don't think that we have to split hairs too much. They were both there. But um, there is a part of just looking at this that makes you wonder like, oh, maybe Priscilla was actually the one who was the more gifted teacher. So we see that here, but they're able to bring Apollos along. So um, they help him. Apollos is going to go on to Corinth where, you know, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila have come from. And then Paul is going to come to Ephesus. So then we get to see a little bit about Paul's ministry. Um, and it starts by him meeting some people that had probably been taught by Apollos. So in uh, chapter 19, starting in verse one, it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So what we see here is that Paul's ministry um, kind of fills in the gaps of Apollo's teaching. And when these people realize there's a baptism that's not just in John, but there's a Holy Spirit, they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, let alone that you know the Holy Spirit would indwell us. Um, and so when they believe this, they then receive the Holy Spirit and in a powerful way um, signifying that. So uh, we even see God's sovereignty here as like these believers who didn't know about the Holy Spirit are able to meet Paul. Maybe these are people that Apollos taught at some point, but after the time where Priscilla and Aquila get to him, maybe he you know, wasn't able to return to everybody he taught to kind of give them this new information that he received. But we see this divine ordaining of Paul's uh, presence with these believers to also tell them about the Holy Spirit. So, um, so Paul is going to minister. Guess where? He's going to go to the synagogue. It says for about three months, he spoke boldly. He was reasoning. He was persuading. But in verse nine, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So what we see here is, again, Paul, he gives a lot of time, three months. But again, he's kind of getting rebuffed um, in these Jewish contexts. And so he decides that he's going to go to the hall of Tyrannus, which um, was likely a lecture hall um, or some other kind of place that there was uh, learning and Tyrannus was probably the teacher um, who taught in that space. So whether that may be that um, Tyrannus was a believer and allowed Paul there, or maybe they were very curious um, from a philosophy religion standpoint to hear what Paul had to say, but um, he was able to reason. It says reason daily. And then it says that he continued for two years. So again, another very, uh, meaningful ministry. And then obviously he's going to write the epistle to the Ephesians. Um, so Ephesians, you get a lot less of uh, the uh, slapping of the hand that you get in the two Corinthians epistles. Uh, Ephesians like half the length of one of the Corinthian epistles, I think maybe less even. So they clearly didn't need quite as much instruction after Paul left. Um, the book of Ephesians basically covers identity in Christ and how we live that out. So uh, there's clearly some things he wanted to talk to them about, but it seems like the Ephesians were getting along just a little better than the Corinthians, which is the case of most of the churches in the New Testament. Those Corinthians, they just, they had a wild time. They had a lot, they had a lot going against them with the, uh, with the, idol worship that went on in their city and um, just the different gods they served. But so we got to give them a little credit. We got to give them a break. So he's ministering in, there for two years in Ephesus and Ephesus is located in the province of Asia. And it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So um, it's not that just he's going and talking to the same people necessarily. It's not that this is an isolated thing, just having Ephesus, it's spreading to uh, the whole region and Ephesus being kind of the key city in that region. Um, it's clear that there's multiplication happening, that people are talking about Jesus. People are talking about 
what Paul has been saying. Um, and it says both Jews and Greeks are hearing it. Now, obviously, they probably didn't all believe it, but they all heard it, which is which is definitely something shows the uh, I think the tenacity that Paul had during his ministry there to keep going at it daily for two years and that um, it was able to spread. So um, we do see next in this next section, 11 through 16, kind of a, a to me what is a little bit of a funny story. So I'll just read it. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So what you get in this story is you've got some people that are recognizing that Paul's ministry has power and that the Lord is blessing his ministry. They're like, maybe if we just like throw out the name of Jesus, throw out the name of Paul, we can, you know, have some of this same power. And it appears that these, these Jews were, uh, it says they were Jewish exorcists. So this was probably supposed to be their, their uh, trade that what they were supposed to be able to accomplish, but it appears they were not able to, and especially not at the level of Paul, who uh, the Lord was obviously propping up his ministry as legitimate um, with all these extraordinary miracles. So they thought maybe if we just say some of the th same things that Paul says, then we can get away with this too. But I just love that not only is it unsuccessful, but the evil spirit talks to them and is honestly kind of like spicy with them. He's like, who are you? I know Jesus. I haven't even heard the name of Paul, but who are you? Um, and then poor guys get beat up by this one guy who's got this evil spirit and Whoops, I guess they probably should have actually maybe believed in Jesus before they started invoking his name or the name of Paul. So anyway, so I just thought we'd take a brief stop on that story because I think it's kind of funny. So um, unfortunately, Paul's ministry in Ephesus has a little bit of ugly to it as well because uh, Ephesus was the city of Artemis, uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, um, Artemis being one of the gods in the Greek pantheon. And uh, so some people are upset that Paul's ministry is starting to cause sales of idols to go down in the city. So there's a silversmith, Demetrius. He is very upset that Paul's ministry is affecting the sales of his uh, silver Artemis gods. So um, he starts to stir up a little trouble and he's saying, hey, man, this Paul, he's no good. He's disrespecting, you know, the God of our city. They great as Artemis of the Ephesians. He basically is able to stir up a crowd uh, to the point where, you know, people are like, yeah, wait a minute. We can't let Paul do this. So it appears that this kind of helps spell an, an exit for um, for Paul's ministry in Ephesus as it's caused quite, quite a stir there. Um, but at the same time, again, all the people in the region are hearing about it, so they can cause the stir that they want. But clearly the word of Jesus has gone out and Paul has accomplished that. So he's going to take a little brief sojourn um, to Macedonia and Greece to do some ministry there. Um, there's a story about this uh, person who falls asleep while Paul's teaching and falls out a window and dies. Paul raises him from the dead. Very 
unique story, very uh, powerful miracle, again, legitimizing Paul's ministry. Uh, but And then he's going to actually swing by Ephesus again on his way to Jerusalem. And um, he's going to talk to the Ephesian elders and encourage and exhort them. And they have a, a great moment just to uh, just kind of a great sending off of these elders where whom you know Paul is probably not going to see again. Um, and so that's all on his way to Jerusalem. Um, that's where he's headed. But on his way, he stops in a couple of spots and both groups tell him like, hey, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. There's going to be trouble for you there. Um, that's, they tell him that, uh, it says in, uh, Cyprus. Yes, it is in Cyprus that they, um, or a tire, a tire. Um, they tell him like, Hey, we're kind of getting this feeling. You shouldn't be going to Jerusalem. There's some trouble that awaits you. He keeps going. Then they, um, are later going to come to this guy named Agabus and, um, he's a prophet and he prophesies that. Um, Paul is going to be arrested uh, at the hands of the Jews who are going to deliver him to the Gentiles, probably meaning like uh, maybe the Romans. And so he's kind of saying, hey, I, I understand. So after he gives that prophecy, all the people around are like, well, Paul, you can't go. But Paul is telling him, this is what I'm called to do. And here's what he says in 2113. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So um, Paul is telling them, like, don't make this harder than it has to be by by being upset. I don't want you to be upset. But he recognizes that there may be trouble for him in Jerusalem, but he obviously feels strongly enough that um, he is going to continue to do that. He feels the spirit is leading him there. So he, he goes there. He's going to visit James, uh, James, the Lord's brother. Um, there are going to kind of work out some way for James is basically telling him that um, some of the Jews in Jerusalem are thinking that they're upset because he's, they think he's just totally abandoning his heritage as a Jew. And they're teaching him to forsake the law of Moses. They're upset about his ministry to the Gentiles, all these kind of things. So they kind of try to do some things. They, uh, Paul does this like purification that he's hoping will help them realize that he is still a Jew, but he's a Jew who believes in Jesus. And so, uh, but it's unsuccessful. Um, there is uh, a big uproar um, after a little while um, in the temple. They also think that he brought a Greek into the temple um, where they were not supposed to be. Um, it doesn't actually really tell us whether or not he did that. It kind of implies that he did not. But um, anyways, they arrest him. Um, eventually, uh, Roman soldiers have to intervene to keep them from beating him. And so... Um, but what is afforded to Paul during this time is he has an opportunity to um, to share um, the gospel with a large crowd outside of the temple in Jerusalem. So even as he's being arrested, he has this opportunity to to share, and that's going to go into chapter twenty-two. So I don't want to get too much into that. But um, it clearly, again, like even though this bad thing is happening to him, that there's a good result. There's this positive Tim being arrested. Um, that's allowed his ministry to continue. And really, I think if we're to pick a theme for these chapters, it's really about the sovereignty of God. It's about the way that God is orchestrating these ministers, these ministries, um, these people for his glory. These stories give us a lot of insight into his sovereignty, how he's in control, and that he orchestrates things for his glory. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, we 
are basically admitting he is powerful over this. He is able to do these things. And the reason he does it is for his glory. Things that seemingly maybe are unrelated um, are we see in this passage, we see several things that come up that we say, ah, okay, this was obviously divinely ordained that this would happen. So one is the meeting of Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth for Paul. So just the, the very uh, meeting of them obviously was orchestrated by the Lord. There's thousands upon thousands of people in the city. The fact that they would meet and then um, not only that they would be able to minister together, but even that Priscilla and Aquila are able to then minister to Apollos, someone that at that point Paul had probably not met. Um, but they're able to bring the influence of what Jesus has done in Paul's life to Apollos' ministry to round it out and to help him more fully understand. Um, even Apollos' ministry in Ephesus and in Corinth that came alongside Paul's, like I said before, they probably even met. So um, Apollos is doing ministry in Ephesus. He does ministry we see in Corinth. We don't get a lot of um, detail, though his ministry in Corinth does cause a little bit of a divide. And that's one thing Paul's going to yell at the Corinthians about in his letter is just that they were kind of picking their favorite teachers. We talked about that, I think, a couple months ago, even when we were discussing the Corinthians. Uh, but yeah, the, the fact that there's these two people ministering, one is we follow his story, obviously, with Paul and his conversion and, and what the Lord's doing through him. But then this other guy, Apollos, who comes from Alexandria, that's in Egypt, and he comes to this area and he's ministering, teaching about Jesus and how he's the Christ um, teaching according to the scriptures, being truthful about who, who Jesus is, clearly a, an example of God's sovereignty. And then Paul telling these followers of Apollos about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit, but Paul runs into him and he's able to tell them about the coming of the Holy Spirit to um, so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and then this persecution in Jerusalem, these all these things you shouldn't go, you shouldn't go, bad things will happen, even using those bad things to... Uh, so the gospel could be furthered. These are just a few of the examples we see in this section about God's sovereignty in Paul's ministry. And ultimately what I hope for us is that we can also recognize that God is, did not stop being sovereign in Acts 21, but that God is sovereign in our lives as well. I think sometimes we can get really worried about making the quote unquote right choice. Like there's a God's will path and a not God's will path. And if it's a decision, you know, should I take this job or that job? Should I move to this city or that city? That one is right and one takes me into the will of God and the other takes me into no man's land where I'm hopelessly lost. I think we can sometimes get a little bit uh, paralyzed by the idea that um, we can we can find or get lost from God's will. Um, but we, I think what we have to recognize is that God's sovereignty in our lives does not uh, does not depend on our choices. God's sovereignty in our life really depends on have we believed in Jesus. Now, there's clearly things that we should and shouldn't do. We see the commands of Scripture and we should follow them. So it's always outside of what God would have us do when we're you know living in sin. But I think that there's a lot of our lives that we have to look at it. What door is open to me? What's available to me? And we can look back. I know I can look back in several instances, instances in my life where I didn't realize that a seemingly small choice would have such a big impact. Um, and even thinking, Hey, what if I, um, apply for this job in Fort Worth? I wonder what'll happen. And now look, here I am, um, in a time where 
it was just an opportunity. And I felt like the Lord wasn't telling me, no, I shouldn't apply for a job of kids pastor at Solid Rock. And so I went for it. And now here I am. And I've definitely seen how the Lord has worked in me through that and how he's grown me through this experience. And so if I'd taken this job or some other job, though, I, I can be confident as a believer in Jesus that the Lord is working at sovereignly working out a plan for my life, that he's going to use my life to work in me and through me. So he's going to change things about me. He's going to grow me and develop me and mature me. And he's also, if I'm open to it, he's going to use me to um, be a, maybe a Priscilla or Aquila in somebody else's life, somebody that can come alongside uh, what they're already doing or bring Priscilla and Aquila's into my life even. So I think for us, we can we can have a lot of rest and we can have a lot of hope in the fact that God is sovereign over our circumstances. He's not taken by surprise by choices we make. Um, he's not left with his hands tied because we made choice A instead of choice B. Um, there were a lot of choices that Paul made in all his missionary journeys. And we see how the Lord orchestrated just such wonderful miracles, spreading of the gospel around all those choices. And I can imagine that there were times he felt really sure about what you should do. And there were times where he felt really unsure but ultimately we see that God used those all for his glory. So I hope that as we consider the sovereignty of God, as we consider the plan of God, as we consider ourselves as a part of it, that we can find hope, that we can find joy, that we can find solace in knowing that if we are submitting ourselves to Jesus, we're submitting ourselves to the Lord, making ourselves available to be used, then he's going to use us because he is sovereign and ultimately he's working for his glory. And it's our pleasure to get to be a part of showing that to others.